Chief Miller is dedicated to featuring the men and women of the fire service from around the world. Chief Miller has a family of content creators who feature great people doing great things, making the fire service a better place. Make sure to follow along as Chief Miller creates, shares, collaborates, and features the special people who call themselves firefighters. Follow along on Instagram at Chief underscore Miller. Find him on Twitter at Chief underscore Miller underscore. Like him on Facebook at Chief underscore Miller number one. And watch for all the podcasts featured within the Chief Miller media family. Make sure to check out ChiefMillerApparel.com for all your fire service apparel needs. Hey, canners, it's time for 30 minutes of unadulterated and uncensored shenanigans. Get ready to call HR because you're going to need sensitivity training after this. Gear up because it's going to hurt worse than writ training in July. Welcome to the Can Man Radio Show with your host, Jason Liska. Welcome back to another installment of the Can Man Radio Show, this time coming to you live from Scottsdale, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, as we participate in an event for the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. we got a lot going on this weekend. We're covering the Everybody Goes Home Advocate Workshop. We've got a lot of special guests, and one of them is here with us today. And we're going to get a chance to meet him in just a moment. We're going to talk about his life, his career, leadership, all the things that matter to us in this profession, especially for those of you evolving into that next level where you want to challenge yourself as a leader, becoming a leader. So that being said, I want to take an introduction or an opportunity to introduce my uh, my guest today. He is... Uh, the director for the Pacific Southwest region of the U.S. Forest Service. He is uh, a decorated veteran of 24 years with several deployments to the Middle East. Uh, he even worked under General Mattis at one point, which I thought was quite fascinating in the course of our conversation. So uh, with no further ado, I'd like to take a moment and introduce uh, my guest, uh, Director Bob Baird. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate so, it. Yeah, and, and you know, it's just an amazing opportunity. I I was directed to you last night by Trisha Sanborn when I was mentioning podcasting, and it's been a couple of months since I put a good podcast out, but when I talked to her, she said, you really need to talk to Bob. <laughs> the history that he brings with leadership, his pedigree, the Marine Corps, what he has done for the U.S. Fire Service overall, it's just incredibly intoxicating in a good way, but so influential. And... You know, I, I just see some of these things that you have accomplished. And this morning, the, the speech you gave us uh, regarding your perceptions of leadership and where uh, we should be and how we should consider ourselves to be as leaders, it, it left an impact with me. But, you know, I want to start out with you. Tell me, tell me about the early days of Bob Baird. So early days, I think for me, was uh, grew up in Virginia, um, grew up to... Uh, uh, pretty much a normal household. At, at one point though, I, I think I had a challenging uh, period growing up. My parents were getting divorced and I had a lot of energy. And so I uh, 
got into some trouble. Okay. And um, ended up uh, getting on probation and deciding <laughs> at that point that um, the best avenue for me was to develop myself and uh, enlist in the Marine Corps. That's funny. So when you say trouble, were you the wild child of your community? Uh, I was one of them. I had a really good buddy that um, he and I went to high school with. He enlisted a year before me. Um, and then I, I waited and, and went a year into the reserves. We were both eventually uh, wanted to become officers. And okay. so it was a really good experience to have a buddy that you can do things through, right? Have a have somebody in your cohort, somebody got in your back and well, all that. You got to have a peer to feed off of, essentially. Yep. So 1986, you come out of Paris Island, mm-hmm. okay? And your first MOS, what was your MOS initially in the military when you went in? So I joined, uh, I was a basic Marine, 9910, which is the entry-level Marine. I went back to my unit in the reserves. I was still trying to decide. Education was important for my family. They wanted to continue to develop. My dad had a law degree and an engineering degree. And so uh, I think working on yourself was something that was instilled in me, you know, constant improvement or trying to improve yourself. So I decided, I got back to my unit, I got meritoriously promoted within the first six months. So I made Lance Corporal, which was great, and then decided to apply for an officer program, uh, which was not the, the, the way to have it be done in those days in the, in the 80s. So I enrolled in the platoon leader class, and then that next summer was accepted officer candidate school. So take me to those days. You, did you have your college degree at this point? No. So I was working. You said it wasn't the normal way of going into OCS from yeah. your perspective, or at least of the time. So what was different? What set you apart from all the other candidates? Most um, most officers go to four years of college, and then um, we'll do a officer development, officer candidate school in a summer, kind of like you see on the movies with Lou Gossett and an officer and a gentleman. That's oh, yeah. the typical typical mode, college boys going in. And here I was and been enlisted, um, luckily or fortuitously had been picked up, recognized and was picked up for an officer program quickly. And so people saw stuff in me. You know, um, sometimes that's better when mentors or people will reach down and go, hey, I see something in you that you may not see in you. Um, and so that was an opportunity at a different levels. And then um, I had enrolled in the University of Maryland, got accepted, and uh, decided that I wanted to pursue a college degree. Ended up going to Maryland, and um, two years later or so got my degree okay. in government and politics. Uh, I had done some community college, uh, again, all on my own. And I guess maybe that's the first thing that helped develop me as a leader is if you're going to do it, you got to do it yourself. And so I think early on there was a lot of survival and grit. Uh, my Both my parents had divorced, and so financially there was no opportunity. And so I had to, I had to find the opportunity or I wasn't going to go. Marine Corps opened up an opportunity, gave me some help with the GI Bill, allowed me to get, uh, I ended up getting hired as a resident assistant, having come from the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's... There's usually communities or organizations who have discipline challenges, so I was put uh, quickly into a hall of uh, uh, 80 residents, so now I'm running a unit um, quickly. The guy in charge of the problem children, Of the problem children, children. whose previous RA had quit. Oh, boy. Uh, Oh, boy. And so it was a way to get through college, though. 
So okay. I think things build on each other and yeah. and never be afraid to push. I, I, I pushed. And so I was I desired to get the commission. I had to get to college. And so there was a lot at stake personally that I was pretty much invested. I had moved a lot of chips onto the table. You were super motivated, in other words. I think so. And I think I had finally found something uh, that I could get behind. I found something that that had I had a passion for, mm-hmm. and um, that was service. That was um, a selfless service. And then I, I enjoyed being in uniform um, in the Marine Corps. Uh, having accomplished boot camp, I saw being an officer as a whole other different uh, chance. And so really enjoyed that. So you challenged yourself at a young age to become an officer. You you probably were not like the rest of your peers overall, I imagine. I think um, once I began to see, again, a buddy of mine had, had uh, done it a year before me, I got to see that piece. I appreciated the the chance to lead and the opportunity to lead. And, you know, when people put their trust in you to make the right decision, that's a, that's a, a weighty honor. You know, you're, you're committing people who could lose their lives. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no bigger um, obligation you have to show up, show up with your whole self and show up ready to make the best decisions you can. Um, since then, I, I had worked in, uh, you know, different odd jobs, pizza place, all these different things. But um, at this point, the opportunity to join the Marine Corps and and, um, and uh, find a, a place that I could really, it was a place that I enjoyed. So a lot of my values, my desires, and, and who I was inside, I was able to align with that. Your, your formidable years, as I would like to call them, the years that developed you as Bob Baird, where you are today, came in that early time frame, it seems. At least it, it kicked it into gear so that you could move forward and yep. continue on your progression through the ranks. And so let's move forward from there. Let's say you now you've graduated college. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, a, you're a butter bar at this point, yep. right? Okay. Absolutely. And from there, what was, your, what was your first deployment? What did you do right after becoming a butter bar? So I was in the officer basic school, they call it, okay. in 1990. Yeah. And if you remember, that was uh, Gulf War. Desert Storm. Yep. So as a, uh, I was selected to be an infantry officer, mm-hmm. um, and I'm about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, so uh, I'm not your typical... Did you sport the same haircut back then, by the way? Prob- well, I, I got away from it, and I've gotten back to it. All right, so well, because, I mean, it's, the... it, it's total jarhead, I'm just saying. <laughs> it it's is. total jarhead total haircut. Jarhead. Total jarhead haircut. Uh, I tried. I got gotcha. you. Uh, I did I gotcha. grow the facial hair. you got to give me credit well, there. No, that's right, good. That, see, I, I, all my forestry guys have facial hair beyond my mustache. It's it, it's mind-boggling because you guys can all grow beards. You can grow goatees. Us guys in the fire line, we can't do You're, that because, yeah. you the mustache is as far as we can go. Yeah. So anyway, you move into the Gulf War now at this point, Desert yep. Storm. So I was second lieutenant, and uh, the air war started. And so we were all taking bets on, you know, how long does a second lieutenant live as an infantry officer in the infamous Iraqi formations, uh, you know. And so I went into uh, a combat replacement company. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell me that's not something that... 
<laughs> makes you pause. Uh, you're a combat replacement. Yeah, maybe a little, but we're, we're throwing apples to oranges here because the closest conflict we have before that is Vietnam, where the right. life expectancy was what for a yeah, butter bar coming was, off the helicopter? not long at all. I mean, so, 90 seconds, I yeah, thought it was, was in some the, cases. One of the Yeah, that's the discussion. So how do you... How do you make sure that, um, so it was pretty tight. Yeah. And I think that's something the fire service also has is everybody's tight. A lot of people don't understand those relationships. Sure. Uh, Sometimes closer than family in many ways if you've gotten through something. And so a lot of the infantry officers that I was there with, uh, very grueling course, um, really just uh, um, teaches you to, again, not quit. Uh, be a ruthless opportunist. Mm-hmm. Look for opportunities and, and how you're going to do that, and and trains you in a, a speed of decision making. If you're going to be the decision maker, um, the course instructors are ruthless about. Well, do something. Yeah. Seize the initiative. Develop the situation. Don't wait for perfect. You know, perfect is the enemy of good enough. And, and I like to compare that to the the thought process that. Making a bad decision is far better than being indecisive. If you can't make a decision, you're failing your men, your crew, far greater than making the wrong decision. So being pushed into that role, not everybody can adapt to that though. Not everybody can say that mindset works for them and you're doing it with how many Marines at one point in combat? 30 30 different Marines as a replacement combat officer, (laughs) which has its own undertone to that. That definitely, definitely resonates with me. But now that was a relatively short conflict. Yep, very short. We were uh, in and out. Well, no, well, so we never deployed. So we went to Pendleton. Okay. Uh, went out to the field and did uh, uh, got in trenches and did the field portion. A lot of live fire. A lot of pretty impressive live fire. Even got to it. standards, nothing better than everybody's going to war and sure. we're going to pull out the stops to make sure everybody's trained in the combat <sighs> replacements. And uh, so they put even put us in a. A pit and ran tanks over us, right? I mean, oh yeah, really yeah. good training to help you understand what an, dealing with armor is. They were putting um, you through all of the 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 rigmarole. Yep, in other and words, it was going well, and and then the war was over. Yeah, and so then uh, all of a sudden we come out of the field and the war's done, and we're like, what? Hold on a second. So talk about missing it. Yeah. Um, so what does Bob Baird do now in the Marine Corps as Lieutenant Bob Baird? In typical Marine fashion, they brought us all in a room and said, okay, part of you are going to Camp Pendleton okay. on the coast, and part of you are going to 29 Palms in the desert. Send me to the coast. Send me to the coast, well, please. of course. Guess yeah. what? Right? You don't want to go to the desert. No way. So it's coast, desert, coast, desert, coast, desert. I end up in the desert. Oh, luck of the draw. So I did almost four years in... 7th Marines, which is the regiment up in 29 Palms. Okay. Um, between 3-7 and Infantry Battalion was a platoon commander there, a weapons platoon commander, a company executive officer. Company's about 120. Okay. Um, and then moved to the regiment to be a regimental adjutant um, because I had, and then also had a, was a company commander as a lieutenant, which is a great job as a lieutenant. Sure, sure. Uh, normally that's a captain's job, but I had done all almost all of the the jobs in a infantry battalion and um, had offer, uh, extended because I wanted to stay in the Marine Corps. There's a first four years when they usually are up and out. Okay. Different than fire service or other services sure. where there's a 
desire to retain, there's often a, a lot of off-ramp. Absolutely. I mean, on the career side of the fire service, we're looking at minimum 20 years. Correct. Okay. So it's guaranteed when you walk through the door. Uh, in some cases, it's 25 where I came in, but now the changes in our state's retirement system takes it all the way to 30 years. So you got kids coming in at 19, 20 years old with 30 years to look forward to. And I don't know if that's good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's a long time in a combat firefighter role. But so now you're probably moving up the ranks at this point because we're Mm -hmm. talking, what, roughly 11, 12 years between the Gulf and when we finally deployed uh, back to the Middle East again post 9-11, right? So 94, I uh, was augmented, which means you're selected okay. um, to stay permanently in okay. the Marine Corps. That means you can get up to major. I was promoted to captain uh, and then given an assignment. And guess what? You know, how that assignment was chosen. I said, well, which one's near the water? Right? Because I was pretty much, I thought I was going to go in the Marine Corps and be near the water. Right? No, and, no, uh, not with the Marines. No, not what you want. So then Should I moved have joined to the Navy. Texas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, was selected for an independent duty called inspector instructor. Okay. You run a reserve unit, which is a whole different morale, right? Sure. How do you run people who just come in and one weekend a month and have a whole other set of commitments? And how do you prepare them for war and get their psyche going? And I had been in enlisted reservists, so it also helped me. That was one of the reasons why they moved me out there as the inspector instructor. You do casualty assistance okay. out there. You represent yourself to the community and represent the Marine Corps to the community, and it's a tremendous opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about the casualty assistance. Um, that was, uh, it sounded like just in our conversation before we started the podcast, that left an impact with you or resonated with you. It was. I think that um, honoring the fallen became something that was very important to me to be done well. And, um, you know, that family may only have uh, very few experiences with the service. Mm -hmm. Um, And in particular, the Marine Corps takes pride in making sure that uh, all its members know what, no matter when, once a Marine or always a Marine. And so there are Families are taken care of. There's a casualty assistance control officer assigned by headquarters Marine Corps. There's a duty officer, general officer, a one-star, who's always on duty to answer issues and to unscrew things that can happen, pay, Mm -hmm. transportation, whatever. And so they've set up an organization that made sure that uh, we would get a fax and it would be... uh, fatality notice it would usually be some of their records so we could see where their next kin was it'd be their insurance information their desires Mm -hmm. if they had had that and we would start into work through okay now we got to go do the notification it was a race to try and make sure that we got there ahead of the next kin finding out some way that wasn't done well and and so having done that um more than a dozen times oh probably probably several dozen times in the three years I was there um, because a lot of veterans come from Texas. Sure. And so a lot of uh, families. So I basically, my area was from Houston south to the border all the way west. It's a lot of coverage. A lot of coverage. And so memorials, you made sure that not only was the family taken care of, of the active duty Marines, um, they knew how they could get to the funeral. If there was another funeral wherever the uh, Marine was, uh, handled the remains in a dignified manner, made sure they were put in a uniform, 
Uh, I personally inspected mm-hmm. to make sure the uniform was appropriately done by the um, by the uh, people that prepared the body. And so you're talking about up close and personal, making sure that um, those fallen were respected and, and treated with dignity all the way until you know they were they were uh, said goodbye to by their next of kin. Being able to pay tribute to our heroes who sacrificed of themselves for our nation. Did you find that to be one of the more rewarding aspects of your career? I think it, it really was. I think it, it uh, set a high bar for me for what was to occur from that. So, you know, here we are in the fire service meeting, uh, visiting with the National Fallen Firefighters yep. and the yep. advocates from across the country, same people who have a passion to make sure that if it's done, it's done right. Families are taken care of because they've lost uh, a very important person, son, daughter, husband, wife, right? The Parents, lasting impact. Lasting impact. And so it's the least the organization can do. It's the least that we can do to make sure that they understand that we value the sacrifice and the loss of life for the greater good. Um, and so, yes, that's affected me to this day and being involved in that I've continued to be involved and I've continued with making an impact and making a priority with the with the people that I deal with mm-hmm. and so in in um, in the region uh, make sure that um, we unfortunately had a non-line of duty death yes, uh, yes. memorial actually today in California and um, skiing accident so we made sure we had the honor guard there um, we got authorization, and, and organizations often c- create obstacles mm-hmm. because they're accountable for things like funds and travel and accountability and and hours and absolutely right. And, and, and if they're funded by the taxpayer, they're funded uh, by donations. That can make a huge difference. Absolutely. And so setting a standard mm-hmm. that's both compassionate and appropriate uh, for for being accountable to the taxpayers is, is a real challenge. And so we've worked and tried to take that on as a leader um, because you start off in leadership, you're, you you got to start with yourself. Mm-hmm. And then usually you're a leader of a, a small group, you know, a section, a, an engine, a few people. Uh, uh, um, and then you get to where you're running a platoon, let's mm-hmm. say, a commander, mm-hmm. which is probably the first chief officer kind of absolutely leadership level, where you're now you're now recognized for your decision making, for your thoughtfulness, for who you are. You are you got their back, mm-hmm. and um, do they, do you care? Do you show you care? Do you walk the walk? It's the hardest walk to walk sometimes. It's the hardest walk to walk sometimes, and. You're three years there. You said you did. You served three years, over, yeah. over a, a dozen members and their families. Yeah. Do you still talk to them today? No, not the families. Usually, uh, the units would often do that. Okay. So, the casualty assistance control officer was one step back. Often, mm-hmm. the way the advocates and and I've seen the National Fallen Firefighter Foundation come in with people from outside who help orchestrate and conduct the logistics, right? Logistics of memorials are significant. Gotcha. Yes. Um, everything are. from honor guards to play the bagpipes in oh, the yeah. beginning, right? Detail and, oriented. And doing it correctly and again, mm-hmm. getting it right. 
And so the casualty assistance control officer was often the quarterback uh, and, and officer in charge of, the, of that. And as that role, though, you were usually the senior officer there and left to present the flag on behalf of the country. Um, so that's a, if you have never done that, it's, uh, it's an awesome responsibility. You know, I hope people don't have to do that. Sure. Uh, I hope that they, if they're ever a leader that's put into that situation, they can reach out to somebody who can help them prepare for that mentally, mm -hmm. which was often the way we would do it if a unit sent a unit representative from, let's say, the East or West Coast to help with that funeral to be their unit representative. Often we'd allow them, you know, we'd want them to present the flag on of behalf course. of the commander. Of course. But how that's done is important, and that's you get one shot. And, and that leads me to my, uh, my next thought, uh, where you brought some change to the U.S. Fire Service, in a sense, with uh, the Honor Guard. And you developed the program in some ways or enhanced it? The program had, been, it had existed. It uh, had been very regionalized. Mm -hmm. In other words, it had operated somewhat under the, under the national radar. And um, as my career progressed, uh, I had become a major. I went to school, uh, did a company command tour in Hawaii, um, came back, uh, finished being a captain, went back, and met um, the national director, Tom Harbor. Mm -hmm. And we started looking at the similarities in decision-making. And I'm, I'm getting to your question because what we found was a commonality ethos between the fire services and the military. People see it all the time. And so um, the National Honor Guard for the Forest Service uh, eventually started training with the Marine Corps at 8th and I uh, called the, um, the body burial detail. And so they're the ones that specifically train if, if someone's being buried at Arlington National Cemetery they go through a very detailed ceremony, and so they're, they're the, the cream of the crop as far as how they did that. So ironically, I had done it on a minor scale at a unit level, training my Marines on the permanent staff to do that correctly and, and flag folding, presentation, etc., firing detail, 21-gun mm -hmm. salute, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot behind that. Oh, absolutely. And then um, so helped the Forest Service with that piece, but then... Uh, later, as I decided to retire and um, look toward joining the fire service, the forest service was, uh, I had known all them, mm -hmm. and then it was uh, an opportunity to help enhance that program within the forest service and allow it the ability to grow and flourish and have some discretion about innovation and uh, the way they would draw in people. Um, and making sure it was funded, cared for, and and managed. So it was more of feeding it and helping it and mentoring it and protecting it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes leaders got to do that. When you're in a big organization, uh, if there's some things that are important, you got to make sure that they're not caught up in the regular bureaucracy that exists in every large organization. And, you know, they're all out there. Absolutely. 2013, mm -hmm. probably a tough year for you. Yeah, Where was, were you in the hierarchy of the U.S. Forestry Service at that point? So in the, I had retired uh, as lieutenant colonel uh, in 2012. Um, I had started 
early that year, January in 2012, as the Deputy National Fire Director. Um, there's about 10,000 wildland firefighters permanently in the Forest Service across the United States, spread across eight regions, mostly in the West, mm-hmm. and then half in California, um, basically because of the complexity, terrain, values, urban interface. Um, That's a tough behavior. part of the country for fire. And so, um, so I was the deputy national director. I oversaw all the aviation operations across the United States. Had a uh, direct report that handled that. I oversaw the National Interagency Fire Center mm-hmm. and the deployment operations mm-hmm. and risk management. And under risk management was the safety and uh, portions of that, which is kind of where the honor guard and uh, was part of the National Incident Management Organization, which are the standing federal IMTs. Okay. So it was a, it was a significant job in Washington, and uh, it was a tremendous opportunity to see the entire organization and how it all connected. Back to 2013, two days after Yarnell, you said you had deployed to the, to the site. Yep. They, uh, after that, you know, Arizona was doing their best. Uh, everyone wanted to help. Everyone understood the significance of what had occurred. We deployed two national incident management teams down to assist with just the scale of uh, managing through not just the public, the families, um, what was to occur. Um, and oh, by the way, there was still a fire going. Mm-hmm. Right. It had to be managed. It had to be managed. Absolutely. So we call it an incident within an incident. Sure. Well, the obviously the loss of life became the bigger incident. The fire was there at containment. I went in to Yardell and actually the incident management team who later came there to contain the fire. I received their out brief actually and their closeout briefing and thanked them. It was quite emotional for them to be on scene and trying to manage all that. Um, and I was literally a, a conduit to make sure that national level um, Washington was understanding huge policy pieces. We were trying to make sure we were able to support at that time, uh, large memorials were being set up. Um, people from all over the country were going, getting down there, setting up in the high school, mm-hmm. um, making sure that all logistics, uh, all that was handled. And so I was uh, there to support the Prescott National Forest. Some of the leaders there, Pete Gordon, who's actually retiring soon, was mm-hmm. a forest fire management officer. And uh, Prescott and... Uh, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, that wildland fire program had an alignment because it was a wildland program where the Forest Service had assisted with a lot of leadership and efforts from multiple people in the Forest Service that helped build that. So they were more of a regional team, not totally affiliated with the U.S. Wildland uh, wildland or Wildland Service, in, in other words, right, or the U.S. Forest Service. They were off the... Um, well, they, they belong to that department. The department itself. Yep. Got and it. So it was as if they had a wildland division. Okay. But the Forest Service had helped them with training, making sure they got their training, mm-hmm. uh, leadership, recruitment. And there were four Marines, actually, on that crew. don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that. I came to know that when they their funerals occurred. You had mentioned that um, while you didn't know the 19 directly, you felt that through 
the familial connection. You met the spouses, you met the girlfriends, the moms, the dads, the children of the 19. And you felt like you had an opportunity to get to know them through them. And, and what, was, what, was, what was that like? How much impact did that have on you from a leader's perspective, from a human perspective? So sometimes it's important, you know, my, I saw my role as to help the Prescott National Forest and they were pretty devastated at the loss. Um, they had known them, integrated with them, trained with them, did projects with the Granite Mountain Hotshots. And so there was a, I was really there to help them get um, through this. Um, you know, you, you never know when you're going to go. Mm-hmm. It was one of the impressions I found. And, you know, what's that eulogy going to be mm-hmm. for any one of us? There's no better test than to go, well, what are people going to say when I'm not in the room anymore? Right? It's one oh, yeah. thing what people say to your face. It's another... When you're gone. When you're gone. And so seeing, again, the effect on the family, um, it's always hard for me. I have seven kids, so to see orphans is a, is a significant uh, emotional piece for me. And to see how much uh, the good that the men had done on that crew and the faith I saw a lot of. Uh, We talked about how many times we went to church that week in different churches around uh, the area and so trying to honor them. And so I saw how there had been a faith component to that, which also bound the crew together. And so... um, you begin to see the legacy that you leave. And so nobody can be, um, I don't think, can be left unmoved. And so you then say, well, what's my legacy? What am I going to pay forward? Mm-hmm. How am I going to invest in others? Uh, it's not about me. And so when you get to a level of leadership in my uh, selfless leadership, being a servant, I think that's the way you got to frame being a sincere leader. There's people that can feed their ego all the time. I talked about on my talk about um, the Marine Corps uh, leading Marines, mm-hmm. and it's a field manual 1-0, right? The leading yep. Marines. Yep. And it's not about, it's a calling than a profession, I think, is what it talks about. And, and we did discuss a little bit uh before the podcast and some of the the things you discussed today about leading from the front um talking about selflessness sacrifice service and of course the fact that this calling that we find ourselves in whether we willingly find ourselves in it or we we find it by happenstance you know whether we fall into it or we we choose it um there's a lot of good and bad with that because mm-hmm. I don't think the message sometimes gets clearly um, clearly uh, stated to the importance of what this job in the fire service means and to the individual, to their family, to their community. And not unlike a soldier, 
You know, the fact that when you make the decision to become a servant, whether you choose service in the form of serving your country or you take it in serving your community, there's an expectation there. Um, and, and I want to talk about that a little bit from your perspective, because I often wonder sometimes what motivates people to get into this line of work. And I'm sure you encountered soldiers in the same mm-hmm. aspect that maybe they thought it was what they wanted, but they didn't meet the expectation of the service in a sense. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned I've been a legal officer. Uh, you did for General Mattis, if I'm not mistaken. Seventh Marines, yeah. uh, both adjutant legal officer when he's the commanding officer as a colonel. And so, uh, you know, being a legal officer, you get to see all the uh, different cases that come up and, and yeah, um, we would discharge Marines for doing drugs. Uh, we would discharge them for a variety of offenses. And so um, both punishment and, and uh, inevitably discharge if they, or, or an administrative discharge. Which went fitness, against uh, your ethos, which went against your code in the Marines, did it not? Uh, I don't think so. No, you don't think I so? I think we set a high standard. Okay. And if... Uh, no, no, I meant, I meant that their acts went against oh, your absolutely. ethos. And not so, not the dismissal of them, but their yep. actions went against the Absolutely. ethos, the code. Um, and many of them, uh, there is an there is a tension of selfishness in humanity, um, and so people will make short term decisions. Uh, they'll do things that they regret for the rest of their lives, and um, but organizations may have to hold them accountable. And so watching that accountability and being part of that accountability as a commander, mm-hmm. you know, no different than a chief officer, you have to be thoughtful about compassion. You so know, you talked about getting a second chance. And, and it was. And, and yeah. that's a significant thing. A, a leader's got to use discretion um, to make sure that it isn't just a hatchet job or a hack and and, and a thoughtful, you, there's no tyrants. You need to carefully consider each case and look at the individual. And is there a redemption path? Often those people that are redeemed are the most motivated because they, they see that people are investing in them maybe before they ever did. They can often not appreciate what they're in until they're gonna lose it. But I don't think they can understand it fully unless they know their value. Yeah, absolutely. They, one of the perspectives I share with people is when you become a member of our service, when you join our department, your value, okay, begins right there. And you're, you're someone who has worth to us. You're an investment. And what we do with that investment is we cultivate that investment. We look for the dividends to come from that investment, which is growth potential, furthering education, uh, good service, being a good servant to their community, serving with dignity. And I imagine those are some of the same ideals that a U.S. Marine would have when they choose a path of service. So I think that the Marine Corps had an event called the um, Ribbon Creek Incident. Okay. And the Ribbon Creek incident was where a drill instructor from Paris Island um, had gotten intoxicated and taken his platoon out and marched them through the Ribbon Creek. Oh, boy. Which is the name of the incident. Okay. Ended up killing uh, various recruits. And so there were 
checks and balances put in the recruit training system so that drill instructors didn't have ultimate power. Mm -hmm. Because there are places where uh, those put in authority can abuse their authority. All the time. All the time. And so I would challenge people that are listening to look at where are they on that spectrum? Are they uncomfortable with how people are being treated? We, I dealt with multiple hazing cases um, where, you know, the people were caught up in, you know, rites of passage. Mm -hmm. And I consider it, I've actually talked to the people that I serve with now in the Forest Service, and I would relate it to an abused child syndrome. Well, wait a minute, they did it to me. I'm like, this is not then. This is now. This is now. We are in an entirely different environment. We have the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. We have social media. We have cameras all over the place. We have accountability. And, and, and just because it was done to you doesn't mean it gives you a license to continue that that child abuse, if you will, subordinate abuse. Well, and, so, and when you think about it, it, it's because of those implements, those social media implements and all the other aspects of it that we're put in a position now where you can't just cover something up. And when something happens, it can be publicized instantly. And guess what? Public perception, not not the court system, not not the system designed to serve the person, but it's the public perception in a way that can change the scope of, of any practice, whether it's the cultural norm or it's the accepted practice or, hey, this is how we've always done it. And, and, that, that, and in some aspects, it's a toxic mindset. In some aspects, it's not really a harmful mindset, but it's when one person says, I don't like that. And guess what? Now you can change the narrative. And that one person or the masses of people that witness that act can change the narrative for the greater good in some aspects. We talk about that as standing up for each other. Absolutely. And we wouldn't we wouldn't let somebody get hurt knowingly. But yet sometimes there's shenanigans I'll of use course. That word, in places. Well, and, there, there's douchebaggery in our field. Come on. And and, and and that's not a bad thing. If no. it's if it's done in a way to draw the group together, if it's done in a way that's not demeaning, right? There's mm -hmm. a line. There is a line. And um, I'm all about building teams and building effective teams and building teams that have high trust. But if you're, are you constantly picking on the same one? Very true. You know, are you, is there, is the leader understanding that um, actively or passively that person's not like them? And so do you want all kind of little mini-me's running around? Or do you want a diverse team of thought um, who's going to make you better? So from my perspective, I feel empowering my team gets the job done at the end of the day. I want them all to feel equal value. I want them all to feel like they have an important component. However, there is that autocratic side that has to come out. Mm -hmm. So when that decision's made, it's made. But I value the opinion of my guys, my, my senior to my junior. And I think that if, if you can't empower your people in a sense, you're, you're not going to get that buy-in or that feedback that you're trying to elicit as a leader necessarily. You're, you're, you're going to fail if you try to be the dominant driving force in all aspects. You have to treat people to a level of respect, but also maintain that line, that line that says, hey, look. When I say it has to be done, it has to be done. And we get to that point. But 
when it comes down to it, you're still important. You're still a valuable component that needs to be heard. And that also grooms people mm-hmm. to the to the path of leadership in a way, I think. And I found that to be, even in my short time as an officer, it, it's been a very successful path for a lot of people who never would have thought they had the potential to be a leader. Guys who have said, well, my lieutenant wouldn't let me say a word or told me to shut up when I gave my opinion. That still happens today in this profession, and it's sad. But there is a time and a place for being an autocratic leader, but there's also a time and a place. I don't want to use the term laissez-faire as much as I want to use a democratic leader in a sense, where you can take the opinions of others and formulate the general consensus and make that decision. And I think that's where you're going to find greater success. And I think when you have to be that autocratic leader and you have to make those decisions immediately, you're going to get a more responsive team or a more responsive reaction than, oh, that son of a bitch just wants me to go do this type of system. Any great leader is going to win the hearts and minds of their people that they work with. And that can show up as leaders eating last. That can show up as taking care of the troops. That can show up as, um, but you've got to be careful, right? Are you over lenient? That's true. Because uh, you got to maintain a standard. So uh, how you interact, how you do you demean, do you listen, do you create space? Do you determine those things that you want to leave to committee? Hey, you guys figure it out. You guys come to me with an option. Mm-hmm. You're right. It, it never hurts. Sometimes you may get something better that you never considered. But the, the world of the autocratic leader, the world of the, of the leader knows all, mm-hmm. that's not, that doesn't exist anymore. No, a leader shouldn't know all. And so how do you get your people to come around you and say, boss, you need to know this. I see this over here. You need to be aware of this. You need to help them understand what's important to you. Uh, we would call it the Marine Corps trust tactics. Okay. You work so long together that you build tactics that are based on trust. I know he wants me to do it before he tells me to do it. I'm already doing what we would have done. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking to, to them. I'm, I'm anticipating. And it's that anticipatory decision-making that creates highly refined, aggressive teams that are working together. It's the difference between somebody standing there and say. Hey, you go do that, you go do that, and a pack of wolves. Oh, yeah. And the Marine Corps creates packs of wolves. Okay. Nobody's necessarily the definitive wolf, although there are some. There are alphas. Right? There's the pack leader. Supreme alphas, There's right? There's the pack you know. leader. Yes, yes. But if they're going after to take something big down, they're watching each other. Well, everybody's they- looking for an opportunity. Everybody's looking for how can I participate? How can I support? How can I make the the win um and so but it's not to push the others out of the way it's hey we see an opening here's an opportunity so that segues into my next thought uh from earlier today uh, about changing mindset because sometimes you have to change mindset to to evolve that culture or that that norm that Mm -hmm. new norm in some cases so the red queen Uh you, you brought that up earlier um the act of being perpetual in one way, not not stopping one particular act, just moving forward, doing the same thing over and over again, which I, I very quickly related to the definition of insanity. Absolutely. So what happens when you become that kind of leader? In my thought, I feel you become a defeatist 
leader type personality where you're not respected by your peers anymore. You're failing to meet the mark. You're failing to motivate them. You're failing to engage them. And, and I think that racing queen mindset still prominently exists in a lot of ways in our profession. Well, so the red queen at Alice in Wonderland, right? You know, yes. you're running, running, you got to run twice as fast. You're never, you're never going to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. The insanity is, you know, you're, you're busting your rear end only to, to have the same outcome. And what good does um, that do? doesn't do anything but it feeds egos yes because look at them they are doing what I ordered them to do isn't aren't I good as some leaders who lack the intellectual capacity to hear that it could be done better because when that leader leaves the room don't they just say they got no clue absolutely no clue what we're doing they got no clue how to do it better but then did they allow the uh, intellectual opportunity for the people to come back? Did anybody ever stop and say, well, hey, let's do an after action? Any improvements? And really give weight to the junior person and really stand there and listen. Yeah. And let others say, no, no, I want to hear from that first year guy or gal. And what do you think that does? for that first year guy or gal. They got a voice. They got a voice, they're valued, they're on the team, Mm -hmm. and they're gonna go, oh, I can contribute here. Yeah. Because people have choices. And in this business, you got choices. Absolutely. Because it does wear us out, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, So, how do you make them want to be there? How do you make them motivated to be there? Because you, the, you want the cream of the crop. You want the best of the best. And so if you can't give the junior most people the space, it's almost like an investment. If you mm-hmm. invest in them and then you say, okay, this is a situation where I can't have that kind of discussion. Yes. I need shit done yes. now. We control it at that moment. We because can control the narrative. There you go. You to. say, hey, look. This isn't the time. Get that up there. Put that ladder up. Dig that line. Attack. Well, this isn't the ideal thing. I need it. This is what I need. And so their loyalty to you, their heart, is what's going to carry you through. Absolutely. And we're going to close with one of the last things you said. Leaders follow a higher calling. Mm Mm-hmm. To me, humility allows for that higher calling to be followed because while the leader in theory is the one who's put up on the pedestal in a sense, right, for the imagery, all right, if you're the, the company officer, you're the, you're the big guy on the truck, if you're the battalion chief, you run the show for the, the entire battalion, if you're the chief of the department, guess what, you're at the top of the food chain, right? But it's humility, I think, that breeds that higher calling mindset. The fact that you have to remember, you want to be a leader. You have to be willing to accept failure. You have to be willing to rebuild. You have to be willing to regroup, fall back in most cases, and, and, and be willing to be dynamic and change sometimes who you are because... 
if you can't, you're serving no value to the people that you lead. That calling, that calling is valuable. And it's one of the scariest thoughts when you're put in a position of leadership, that calling, that you have to embrace those thoughts. And I don't know if I always do that. I know I fall short in a lot of ways. I'm not the greatest leader. I am a student of leadership, someone who's trying to learn. But I want to close with your thoughts on that. So it, it goes back to uh, what I was reading from, the, the higher calling is out of that um, original Fleet Marine Force Manual 1, the O, right, one, mm-hmm. which is leading Marines. And it talks about the ethos. And it says, being a Marine is a state of mind. It's an experience some have likened to a calling more than a profession. Being a Marine is not a job, not a paycheck. It's not an occupational specialty. It's not male or female, majority or minority, nor is it rank insignia. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Here's it goes on, one last sentence. Stars, bars, or chevrons are only indicators of the responsibilities or authority we hold in any given one in any given time. So I've watched uh, in this agency, I've worn a, a bunch of different rank insignia, a bunch mm-hmm. of different collar brass. Mm-hmm. From a, from a butter bar, you brought it up, all mm-hmm. the way to lieutenant colonel. I was a lance corporal, wore chevrons. Uh, I was a private, no insignia, right? You're mm-hmm. the bottom line. And um, I've watched in the fire service an interesting deference to collar brass, to the oh, size yeah. and scale of collar brass. And I get it. I get that uh, in, a, but in a given situation, you defer to leadership. The problem is... If you defer in silence, they don't know what you had to give. And I also brought up the concept of leading up, where we have an obligation to lead up to the people above us to help them be successful and help them do that. But the putting yourself out there for others who you don't even know, mm-hmm. and that's the reality of the fire service, you may not even know who you're protecting or what's happening. Uh, we call it value, when we were doing a wildland fire, we call it values at risk. What are those things we're trying to protect? And so, but it isn't a structure. It isn't a vacant thing that can be, be, be built back. Because when we're on these fires, and I showed you multiple fires, 10,000 oh, structures going gosh. in wildland, some of these massive fires like the Camp Fire in Paradise. How many homes in Camp Fire? I think it was over over 10,000. That's right. I was thinking eight, but I remember it was it was the biggest of the fires, if I'm not mistaken, yep. right? And still one missing from that fire. Yep, still a person missing. Uh, actually, I got it right here. 18,800 oh structures. Wow. 85 killed and, and one person still missing. $16 billion of insurance loss, adding the personal loss for claims against PG&E for $30 billion. Um, So, you know, if you're going to put people at risk for something that can be rebuilt, I'm not behind that. Mm -hmm. If you're going to put people at risk for life, I can can absolutely appreciate that. Those people in need, those people that uh, need our help, need us to get in there no matter what. And um, I think we need to evaluate that. Um, What are the tactics? What is the risk versus gain? How do we look at the problem and not get so headstrong uh, that we're just going to rush in and, and put people in harm's way? We always got to balance benefit risk because um, you never know. You may be 
that chief officer handing that flag over and, mm-hmm. and by then it's too late. Yep. The point has been made at that point and there's no going back because you only have one life, yep. one opportunity, well, at least to live in a sense. Absolutely. But you can be one who has many opportunities to thrive if you're willing to take the opportunity to do so. So I got to tell you, 55 minutes is not my norm. Uh, Normally (laughs) we go 30, but to sit with you tonight, it's something I want to tell you, I truly appreciate this opportunity. Um, Bob, it's amazing. You bring a lot of fresh perspective, life experience, and some really good leadership traits that have stood out this weekend. And what you said today has resonated with many of the state advocates through the NFFF that were there this morning to be part of that keynote. So I want to thank you for being here with us, being with me this evening, talking to my audience, sharing leadership. And I hope to God we get to do this another time one day down the road and maybe follow up on some things we didn't get to talk about tonight as I was hoping to, but we will (laughs) most definitely. So on behalf of my uh, my esteemed guest, Bob Baird of the U.S. Uh, Fire Service, or Forest Service rather, I want to thank you, and I want to thank you all for being here this evening. As always, keep your head on a swivel, look out for each other, do the right thing, be empowered, be someone who will stand up for the others. So thank you, God bless, we'll catch you again on another episode. There's going to be a couple this week, that I, or this weekend I'm going to do, and we'll, ex- we'll, we'll send them out over the course of the next few weeks. So take care, guys. You just survived 30 minutes of online training with the Can Man Radio Show. Did you remember to train your probie today? The Can Man knows. He knows everything. When that 2 a.m. lift assist drops, the Can Man will be thinking of you in his dreams.